morning and welcome to Rising. We have a Thursday-tastic show for you today. <laughs> I sometimes miss uh, Ryan Grimm's like deadpan kind of introduction to the show. We have a show for you today. It will be a show. It's a special kind of charm. <laughs> what are we talking about? Well, you aren't kidding. It has been an incredible news cycle. Yes. House Republicans held their first hearings into the Twitter files yesterday, calling to the stand several former Twitter executives and what devolved into a partisan showdown over the Hunter Biden laptop story, Pre uh, former President Trump's suspension, COVID misinformation, and more. FBI official turned counsel for Twitter, Jim Baker, denied having any recollection about speaking with the FBI regarding the laptop found abandoned in Delaware. Mr. Baker, you said you didn't talk with the FBI that day. Did you talk to the FBI about the Hunter Biden laptop story prior to then or after that day? I, um... I'm trying to make sure I can answer this question consistent with the restrictions that I talked about in my opening. Simple statement. question. Did you yeah. talk to the FBI about the Hunter Biden story? I do. To the best of my recollection, I did not talk to the FBI about the Hunter Biden story uh, before that day. You talked to him after it. You said your, your, don't your, response is real, your response is real specific to the chairman. You said, I did not talk to the FBI about the Hunter Biden laptop story that day. I assume that day is October 14th. I want to know if you talked to him on the 13th or before or if you talked to him on the 15th and after. I don't recall speaking to the FBI sitting here today. I don't recall speaking to the FBI at all about the Hunter Biden matter. Well, then why did you, answer, why'd you answer it the way you did? I beg your pardon? Uh, I yield back to Then former global head of trust and safety, Yale Roth, admitted the decision to censor the Hunter Biden story was made in error. In 2020, Twitter noticed activity related to the laptop that at first glance bore a lot of similarities to the 2016 Russian hack and leak operation targeting the DNC. And we had to decide what to do. And in that moment, with limited information, Twitter made a mistake. Under the distribution of hacked material policy, the company decided to prevent links to the New York Post stories about the laptop from being shared across the service. I've been clear that in my judgment at the time, Twitter should not have taken action to block the New York Post's reporting. And just 24 hours after doing so, the company acknowledged its error. But the decisions here aren't straightforward, and hindsight is 2020. It isn't obvious what the right response is to a suspected but not confirmed cyber attack by another government on a presidential election. I believe Twitter erred in this case because we wanted to avoid repeating the mistakes of 2016. But one of the moments that everybody is talking about from this hearing has to do with what Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had to say about the purpose of the hearing entirely. Let's watch that. Faced by other news outlets that hoped to corroborate reporting, as many did, the newspaper wasn't sharing what it obtained. New York Post had this alleged information and was trying to publish it without any corroboration, without any backup information. They were trying to publish it to Twitter, Twitter did not let them, and now they were upset. I believe that political operatives who sought to inject explosive disinformation with the Washington Post couldn't get away with it. And now they're livid, and they want the ability to do it again. They want the ability to inject this again. So they've dragged a social media platform here in Congress. They're weaponizing the use of this committee so that they can do it again. A whole hearing about a 24-hour hiccup in a right-wing political operation. That is why we are here right now. And it is 
it, it's just a, an abuse of public resources, an abuse of public time. We could be talking about health care. We could be talking about bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. We could be talking about abortion rights, civil rights, voting rights. But instead, we're talking about Hunter Biden's half-fake laptop story. I mean, this is an embarrassment. But I'll go into it. Ms. Half-fake? Yeah, so I, I want to... We'll, we'll circle back to the earlier stuff. Let's start with AOC half-fake. That's bizarre. I think that th this is evidence, I think, perhaps, of the balkanization of media. I think a lot of these liberals, honestly maybe don't even realize that that's a, they're still caught up in the narratives from 2020. They don't realize this is an, an entirely legitimate story. Look, there's something to the idea that the hiccup was only 24 hours and maybe the Republicans have made more of this than is necessary. But they are able to do that precisely because of statements like this and a refusal of Democrats to acknowledge there was a mistake in the first place. Yeah, I, I frankly thought AOC, even though I disagree with her a lot, was better than that. Uh, it is disconcerting to me that she's, you know, someone who is at least supposedly knowledgeable about left-wing narratives, but the left, the, the very left-wing narrative, like yourself and the circles you travel in, understands yes. that this Russiagate fervor yes. was wrong yes. and had terrible consequences. So for her to not know that that there was legitimacy to this story. It's based on factual information. You can disagree with the implications, fine, but it was not a, a Russia interference attempt. It was a real laptop. They did real journalism, and it was a terrible mistake not to publish it. Um, for, for her to, and she's using almost the, it's, it's, she's using the like, um, the Taylor Lorenz Washington Post language of like, this was a right wing campaign sort of thing. Like, who so cares? it's bad by, <laughs> like, it, it's just bad if conservatives were trying to get their stuff out there because. Who, who cares? I don't know. A lot of information, a lot of reporting is politically salient. The idea that you yeah. don't care about some speech being suppressed because it happened to be speech that advantaged your opponent is the most short sighted thinking I can imagine. And both uh, AOC and Yul Rock in their respective clips, alluded to the idea that because there was, in fact, in reality, a significant Russian disinformation campaign happening in 2020 and in 2016 that had an effect on the election, they were justified in erring on the side of caution, as Yul Roth says, and suppressing this information. But it also feels like they are still overly credulous about the extent to which there was any Russian interference to begin with. So it's like compounding yes. <laughs> levels of not understanding what actually happened, which is feeding, I think, this kind of self-righteous. I think that she believes she's legitimately righteous because right. she doesn't understand what actually happened. She's still ignorant right. about the history. Right. They, the, the emails were hacked, yes, inappropriate, but the information that was released, and now this is going back to 2016, of uh, Podesta, Podesta was, that hack, was real information. That was a fishing attempt <laughs> that it's supposed to target grandmas. Again, it was real information. You can say yes. that was improper, but yes. it was not, but the information, it's just like someone, whatever journalist it was, it was a left-wing journalist who overheard, you know, Mitt Romney in 2012 make the, there's 48% of the country mm -hmm. or whatever that wouldn't vote for, like, mm -hmm. he over, he, he, information he wasn't supposed to hear mm -hmm. and then shared it and it was mm -hmm. very consequential for that election and no one said oh that was a that was a liberal progressive uh interference was it even true Let, let's suppress the quote right. until we can really determine whether or not it's even true right like that's and also i gotta say there's this thing that's also happening with the new york post in particular i think i said this yesterday it's not my favorite newspaper. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's like the height of journalism or anything like that. But it is a real mainstream paper. And we saw this in the Don Lemon clip that we discussed yesterday. There is this casual dismissal of things that are reported in the in the New York Post as though it's okay to censor it, like it's a tabloid, like yeah. it's like it's a, the National Enquirer or somebody's zine from 1997. <laughs> And you can hear it again in the, in the tone of how they talk about, well, just because the New York Post reported this, we have to have it on Twitter. 
Yes, yeah. at least you have to have a, a legitimate rationale for why you censored it. And let's not forget what we learned from the Twitter files. We saw internally that Twitter was struggling with coming up with a reason based on its own protocols to censor the Hunter laptop information and to censor Donald Trump. They knew internally at the time yeah. that it was their own policies didn't really offer an answer here, and they had to kind of reverse engineer an excuse to get the stuff off the platform. Yeah. So why are we pretending, why is AOC pretending like none of that actually happened? Right. No, it, it was it was really, really bad on her part. So I want to circle back to then what the, the actual Twitter employee, former Twitter employees, yeah. Vijay Gad, Jim Baker, Yul Roth were saying. So Jim Baker there was asked about, and remember, he came to Twitter from the FBI. Now he's being asked about conversations he might have had with the FBI. I did not find his responses remotely believable. Yeah. The, the way he said it, I suspect this is just this is just me giving my take here. I don't know. I don't have any extra information. It seems to me like this is a this is a, a company man. His company being not Twitter but the FBI. Yeah. It's looked to me like he was maybe trying to protect the agency. I would mm -hmm. imagine he's someone who has tremendous respect for the FBI and doesn't doesn't like seeing it maligned. Um, it looked to me like he was finding a way to to not say that he'd had conversations. He said he didn't have conversations with the FBI. You know, he swore it in front of Congress. But it was, a, I don't recall when specifically, yeah, maybe I mean, that topic. Maybe I didn't say it to them, but they said it to me. Yeah, I don't know. It left a lot of room for, and, and Jim Jordan was seizing on that yeah, a little the way, bit. Like, Jim how Jordan, are you answering this question? Yeah, Jim Jordan pointing out that he was, he answered very specifically. I did not talk to them on that day. Yeah. It's like, if you ask me, Brianna, did you steal my favorite rising mug? And I said, well, yesterday I certainly was not using your favorite rising mug. Obviously, there's an implication. <laughs> That's there. what happened to the rising mug. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, it's not necessarily the case. And he dropped his line of questioning. I don't know if he ran out of time or whatever. But that, that, that was a good line of questioning for him to go down. Look, this whole thing leads me to believe that as useful as the Twitter files have been, we need a more comprehensive document disclosure than what has been provided mm -hmm. thus far. This, I, I think that there has been legitimate reporting that has revealed legitimate interference or a close relationship between these state institutions like the FBI and a platform which has one public-facing moderation guideline for the normies and a whole other system that's going on behind the scenes for powerful, affluent, and government-aligned actors. And the, and the public deserves to know about that. Yeah, and we're going to be talking uh, a lot more about this today. My, my closing thought for this segment, I am starting to get a little tired of just hearing from Yul Roth and Vijaya Gad, et cetera, and hearing you know, what their state of mind was as mm -hmm. this decision was made. I think they pretty much addressed it at this point. They, they know it was wrong. They admit it was wrong. Mm -hmm. Yul Roth has kind of said, it, he wasn't really comfortable with it, but the higher-ups said we should do this, and then they, we, it, it was a bad decision being reached in real time by those people. We've kind of conclusively covered mm -hmm. that. If you want to protect free expression online from censorship, at, which was the literal title of this hearing, at some point we need to involve the FBI. We need to involve the people who are telling mm -hmm. these figures what to, who are pushing them that we've seen from reporting from, from the Twitter files, from uh, the reporting I did on Facebook. The push is coming from these agencies. And it's a little bit rich of Republicans to be like, dragging employees of Twitter yeah. to, before Congress and yeah. screaming at them, why do you do what the government tells you to do? Right. But like, Oh, that's almost an example of you doing the thing you're mad at them right, for doing. Right. So at some point, it, the, the government has to look inward at 
its role in causing all of yeah, this. Yeah, well, maybe we'll learn more about the FBI's involvement at the uh, Abolish the FBI hearings. Yes, <laughs> that are being hosted by Republicans. Right, exactly. Well, coming up, Twitter Files author Michael Schellenberger joins us with his reaction to yesterday's meeting. I'll also tell you more about what I think about this subject on my radar coming up next. What's on your radar, Brie? Well, Robbie, from the first thread, the importance of the Twitter files has been clear to anyone paying attention. The first release, reported by independent journalist Matt Taibbi, detailed requests from powerful politicians and celebrities to delete tweets and have Twitter impose their censorious whims. And the pattern of requests from the Biden team were highlighted as especially pernicious. Although from that very first drop, Taibbi was clear that both the Trump White House and the Biden White House took advantage of what he described as tools for controlling speech, Taibbi was clear that the system was not balanced. As he wrote, it was based on contacts because Twitter was and is overwhelmingly staffed by people of one political orientation. There were more channels, more ways to complain open to the left, well, to Democrats than the right. This, according to Taibbi, resulted in a slant in content moderation decisions. And the most visible mistake made by Twitter was censoring the Hunter Biden laptop story as fake news, despite the fact that internal emails show that Twitter moderators did not believe the story violated Twitter's own guidelines. As I said, the significance of this reporting has been obvious to anyone paying attention. Not only was it a newsworthy story involving a presidential candidate's family suppressed in the lead up to a general election, additional Twitter file reporting revealed the following. That Twitter quietly assisted the Pentagon's covert PSYOP operations, that the pharmaceutical industry lobbied Twitter to shape content around vaccine policy, and that secret shadow banning of subversive accounts was rampant. But despite the newsworthiness of this reporting, many in mainstream media either ignored the Twitter files, dismissing it as a nothing burger, or they made ad hominem attacks against the journalists involved in an effort to undermine the relevance of their reporting. The reason for this political deflection seems obvious. As Matt Taibbi put it, the clear slant he observed in his review of the Twitter files was distinctly to the left. Liberals, inconvenienced by the revelation, simply had no interest in covering them. And they wonder why confidence in and viewership of liberal media is on the decline. And while I disagree with the calculated liberal disinterest in the Twitter files, I have had some concerns about the methodology used in the searches. The posture of the disclosure by Elon Musk is unique here. You know, typically whistleblowers have a more hostile relationship to their employers, and the documents they leak are confidently understood to be exposing some unpleasant fact about their employers, about the institution, that they prefer the public not to know. In this case, then-richest man on earth, Elon Musk, purchased Twitter after voicing concerns about freedom of expression on the app. He then used his position as CEO to make internal documents available to journalists of his choosing, and as the process went on, other journalists recommended by, to him by those journalists he initially selected. So he has an obvious interest in exposing the wrongdoing of his predecessors. Unlike a traditional whistleblower, however, he also has an interest in preserving the financial viability of his own multi-billion dollar company. 
And as someone who has openly articulated a preference for conservative politics and whose personal brand is increasingly associated with more right-leaning public figures, he also has an obvious interest in making public those documents that confirm his perception that Twitter isn't just censorious, but that it has been targeting the right. Now, it's perfectly possible that that's the truth. I think Taibbi is obviously right that Twitter staff and leadership has historically been left-leaning. And the obvious malfeasance with respect to the Hunter Biden laptop story seems to confirm that Twitter's biggest mistake was one that disadvantaged conservatives. And again, that's no nothing burger. At the same time, as a leftist, I have been curious whether the journalists have been as interested in running searches on the documents that might confirm what many on the left, who have been as or more antagonistic to the Democratic Party as Trump or Republicans, have felt that Twitter is biased against all anti-establishment figures, including leftists. When asked, Taibbi, who identifies as left-leaning and in the past supported figures like Bernie Sanders, he said he honestly hasn't come across much in the way of left censorship. But a pattern of deplatforming and shadow banning of left figures that all of us have observed made it hard for many in the online left community to believe that. After all, it was Bernie supporters who were targeted by Hillary Clinton's correct the record troll farms that were funded to the tune of $1 million. They since became the K-Hive troll. Both right and left anti-war activists have been swarmed by pro-Ukraine, Nazi-affiliated NAFO trolls who made memes, including the N-word and cotton fields, that filled my mentions for days after I interviewed and disagreed with a pro-intervention guest on my podcast. And given the left's understanding of how power works, that there is a bipartisan corporate consensus that weaponizes its power to extract wealth from the working class and thwart populist movements at any cost, I felt suspicious that the coverage was so one-sided. And given my experience conducting document review processes as a corporate lawyer for six years, I was also more skeptical about the document disclosure process than the journalist involved in the Twitter files seemed to be. You see, one of the key tasks corporate lawyers engage in, at least junior associates like myself, was to comb through thousands and thousands of documents that might expose your client legally. You are required to turn over documents in the context of a lawsuit that are responsive to specific document requests made by your opposing counsel. There are some exceptions to what you have to disclose, including privileged communications between clients and their attorneys. But much of the litigation process is consumed with debates over what each side can fairly request and whether they can exclude other kinds of documents. For example, can we exclude various date ranges or can we exclude personal emails? Can you filter out emails that include a personal email like a Gmail address? Or is there a case to be made that because a client sometimes emailed things to their Gmail, you can't actually exclude all personal email? Is the client searching their entire document database? Were files deleted in anticipation of litigation? I mean, there's a whole industry built up around document forensics to ensure that corporations don't lose legal loopholes to withhold documents that could provide evidence of their own wrongdoing. So when I hear the Twitter files journalists say that they're confident they were able to search everything because the search results they requested were returned to them very quickly, too quickly to say filter out inconvenient documents, I gotta say it strikes me as somewhat naive. On a recent episode of my podcast, even attorney Glenn Greenwald expressed some hesitation about the process, saying that he probably would not have felt totally comfortable, to be honest, with the way the Twitter files was, were done, because he's not willing to be manipulated by the possibility that people are handpicking what they want him to see 
or don't want him to see. I probably would not have felt totally comfortable, to be honest, with the way in which it was done. In the sense so? that they were the, they were the guardians of the information. And the only information that you end up getting is information they decide to give you. And I'm not willing to kind of be manipulated by the possibility that people are handpicking what they want me to see or don't want me to see, because that can end up causing me or putting me in the position where I'm unwittingly serving as a spokesperson for an agenda that is not mine. All right, so all of this buildup brings me to the ongoing hearings on the Twitter files. Initiated by Republicans who are now in control of the House, the intent of the hearings was ostensibly to force the public to pay attention to what I agree has been important reporting and to reckon with the liberal bias at play on social media sites. But the hearings took a somewhat different turn. Testimony revealed that the Trump administration routinely asked Twitter to take down posts they objected to, including a tweet from way-too-online model Chrissy Teigen in which she called Trump, well, I'll just play the clip for you. On September 8th, 2019, at 11, 11 p.m., Donald Trump heckled two celebrities on Twitter, uh, John Legend and his wife, Chrissy Teigen, and referred to them as the musician John Legend and his filthy mouth wife, unquote. Ms. Teigen responded to that email at 12.17 a.m., and, and according to notes from a conversation with you, Ms. Navarroli's counsel, your counsel, the White House almost immediately thereafter contacted Twitter to demand the tweet be taken down. Is that accurate? Thank you for the question. In my role, I was not responsible for receiving any sort of request from the government. However, what I was privy to was my supervisors letting us know that we had received something along those lines or something of a request. In that particular instance, I do remember hearing that we had received a request from the White House to make sure that we evaluated this tweet and that they wanted it to come down because it was a derogatory statement uh, uh, directed uh, well, towards well, the president. They wanted it to come down. They made that request. To my recollection, yes. I thought that was an inappropriate action by a government official, let alone the White House. But it wasn't Joe Biden about his son's laptop it was Donald Trump because he didn't like what Chrissy Teigen had to say about him. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. My, my, my. Yeah, I can't repeat what Chrissy Teigen tweeted, but uh, imagine grab him by the blank, followed by a synonym for tookus, followed by a word for a female dog. <laughs> As one former aide to a senior Trump administration official told Rolling Stone, it was strange to see when all of these investigations were announced, because it was all about the exact same stuff we had done when Trump was in office. Per the Rolling Stone, in interviews with former Twitter personnel, one-time Trump administration officials, and other people familiar with the matter, each source recalled what could be described as a hotline, or tip line, or large Twitter database of moderation and removal requests that was frequently pinged by the offices of powerful Democrats and Republicans alike. Now, to be clear, the secret censorship by the government exacted via social media accounts is an issue no matter what party is doing it. I'm not as dismissive as the man in that clip was about how, well, we're harping on the Hunter Biden laptops. The Hunter Biden laptop was important. 
But it's worth asking whether Twitter files journalists were sufficiently skeptical of Elon's motives and disclosures, and whether in exposing legitimate truths via their reporting, they were also useful idiots for Elon's own political project. Should they have asked more questions about their access to the files and whether it was truly comprehensive? Lawyers who withhold documents in a legal context often must produce what are called document logs, detailing what is in the documents that they are not disclosing, so the other side has a chance to contest le le the legitimacy of those non-disclosures. Was there any vetting of Elon's document searches or any understanding of what he might have held with, withheld that is inconvenient to the narrative that the, the Twitter censorship disproportionately hurt the right? Now, Taibbi's response at the congressional hearings has been somewhat flip. He tweeted that there's nothing new here, that in the first Twitter files dumps, he reported that there have been requests from the Trump White House, and that he showed that agencies like the FBI sent spreadsheets with thousands of names to, a, to, to block at a time. And look, Taibbi's absolutely right. He did disclose that in one of the first tw tweets in the first uh, Twitter thread, Twitter files thread. But Matt's framing of the Twitter files has clearly indicated that Twitter influence was disproportionately from the left. And while he reported that the Trump administration has made censorship requests, he didn't really detail those requests in the same level, at the same level of detail he spent describing the Biden administration's request. Listen to him describe his search methodology and the results here in this clip. A lot of people have, have been critical of the Twitter files in this project because they think that we're quote-unquote cherry-picking or showing only one side of things. Just to give you an example of um, of how this worked, like I, I ran searches for Yoel Roth, the lawyer Stasha Cardiel, who it turns out I think it feels like she was running the company. Like everybody seems to be deferring to her, even, even lawyers on, uh, technically on, uh, ahead of her. Um, there was a policy director named Lauren Culbertson. So I, I picked all the senior... Um, officials, and then I ran a search for DNC and RNC, right? On the off chance that there were also requests coming in from the RNC to to get rid of stupid pages. Uh, and it, it didn't turn up that. Like, what you get from the DNC is just this pile of requests to get rid of mostly really stupid things, like, you know, people saying you should, hey republicans go out and vote on wednesday or whatever it is right yeah um but you know occasionally it's something like this where it's legitimately a parody and they have to take their time out and explain to the dnc that you know we don't do that you know this is this is like speech and they're not understanding that on the RNC side, I'm not seeing it. Instead, what you see from the RNC are these constant letters saying, we're going to sue you if you keep doing this kind of stuff to us. So in other words, whether it's because the uh, the Republicans didn't think they, they would get away with it if they were if they wrote to Twitter, um, or whether it's because there was a genuine difference in, in how they viewed this kind of thing, there just, there just wasn't you know, a flip side to the story where you're where you're seeing similarly stupid stuff coming from the Republican side. So on, on one hand, Democrats are making document requests. On, on the other hand, Republicans are threatening to sue if they don't pull down. Uh, sorry, uh, th make censorship requests, rather. On the other hand, Republicans are threatening to sue if they don't censor certain documents. Is that really a meaningful difference? 
Moreover, I have some other concerns. His search terms, as he described them there, are clearly flawed. It could be that emails from left-leaning Democratic officials that wanted to censor tweets were directed through the DNC and therefore turned up when he did a DNC search. But if Republican requests weren't centralized through the RNC, say they came directly from the Trump administration, then the term RNC simply wouldn't turn up hits. Look, designing comprehensive search terms is a legitimately difficult task. It was one that I was paid a significant sum to carry out for years as a corporate lawyer. So I by no means mean to beat up on that for perhaps doing so inartfully. But between unsophisticated search criteria and the lack of transparency around what document trove these searches are actually even being applied to in the first place, I think it's somewhat irresponsible to make, at this stage, such strong claims about the political bias that's allegedly proved by the Twitter files. As one Twitter user wrote in response to Matt Taibbi after yesterday's hearings, they gave you some information, held from you a lot of information, then you proceeded as if you had unfettered access and wrote what now seems as a highly subjective account. They think, I think they pulled one on you, to be honest. And in response to criticism that he should have reported on the Teagan request specifically, the Chrissy Teagan request, Taibbi responded, I didn't see it and don't have it. I was, however, told by sources there had been requests from the Trump White House, which I reported even though I didn't have the actual text. Okay, but reporting credulously on just a piece of information fed to you by an obviously self-interested CEO that's exactly the problem. That's exactly the problem that Glenn Greenwald identified when I asked him whether or not he would be willing to act as one of the Twitter files journalists and why he expressed some skepticism about his willingness to do so. To be clear, I fully believe it's likely that Twitter has a liberal bias. But I also think the most important part of the story is that the rich and powerful are able to censor the rest of us, regardless of what their political orientation is or what ours is. Unfortunately, it's not clear to me that that's also Elon Musk's priority, and I hope that going forward, given the importance of this reporting, that the Twitter files journalists are keyed into the possibility that Elon's interests as CEO of Twitter and their interests as investigative reporters do not perfectly align. All right, so I've been, I've been beating this drum for a while, but... A lot of liberals were capitalizing on the kind of new revelations about the extent to which the Trump administration had made these requests to say, ignore the Twitter files. They lied about the bias. This is stupid. This is a nothing burger. And we saw that a little bit in the AOC um, segment we watched. Yeah, I thought it was, it's frankly sickening to see a, a sudden interest from journalists like those at Rolling Stone. Yeah. Like, oh, now we care about yeah. this because uh, Trump made some ridiculous request. Yeah. Which, I, I, look, I, I take but your they point. Set it, they set it up. They set them but, up to but, run but with the ball Tybee like that. Tybee said that Republicans had made requests and Trump had made requests. You're... I don't totally disagree with you. I, there, the same level of detail, of like laborious detail, has not been done by Twitter files people on exactly what the Trump team was doing. Although some of this gets confusing because like ha a bunch of the FBI requests we're all objecting to are done under the Trump administration. Sure. So yeah. they're not, again, it's not all, even what, what, what we're all kind of objecting to isn't necessarily partisan, dem it's, it's, the, it's deep state type sure. intelligence people. Yeah, the, the, um, the blob is But I'm reading, I read the Rolling Stone story and I think it's actually characteristic of some bad journalism I've seen from this magazine in, in, in the first place. It's all anonymous sources, it's all, you know, people, 
who knows, that they're supposedly talking to in Republicans. But if you read closely, what they're saying is that, and you, like you mentioned the threat of the lawsuits, it's mostly, the Republican Democrats are mostly threatening behavior in response to stuff of theirs being taken down. Sure. Where they're saying, how, don't, how dare you take this down? So I'm not saying, that is, I also think that's improper. I, don't, I think the communications between government and social media needs to end entirely, whether it's the FBI, the CDC, the White House, Republicans, et cetera. It's, it's improper. Mm. But I think there is something slightly different character, even if it's also improper, between Democrats, the FBI, et cetera, saying, we want this content taken down. How dare you leave it up? Look, and Republicans saying, please leave our content M up. Stop taking us maybe, down. Maybe which is there is. What it, which, and in the, Republican, uh, in the uh, Rolling Stone story, it says that, what, that characterizes most of the Republican Look, opposition. And maybe there is, and that's fine. I said, I think, three yeah. times in this radar, I'm completely, I think it's likely that Twitter had a left bias. That's not really my problem. Yeah. A my liberal bias. I'm not a, even a left a bias. Liberal, a liberal bias. bias. Yeah. My problem is that if the reporting that's done isn't also exposing the ways that these institutions have hurt other people like the left, then it's incomplete reporting. And when you look at what Matt Taibbi says, he says, well, yeah, I, I reported on the fact, I was told that there was this Trump, this trove of Trump requests, and I reported on it, but I didn't have it. That quote that I, I used there at the end of the segment, I didn't have it in my possession. Well, okay, so you're telling me you were made aware of the, that there were documents that showed that the Trump administration was making these kinds of requests. They, those documents were not disclosed to you. You reported on it in a, in a summary fashion. You just passed on that information without having firsthand knowledge of what it actually was and didn't feel the need to do any more investigation into what the nature of those requests were and to request more mm -hmm. files along those lines. That, that is exactly the kind of thing that people are now accusing him of journal, journalistic mm -hmm. malpractice over. And again, I don't mean to beat up on him. I think that he's a wonderful journalist whose contributions to the field are innumerable. And you know, people make mistakes, but this is exactly the kind of concern I've been raising the whole time, that it is very, very easy to be selective about your document disclosures. Sure. But I, I don't think that I, maybe people are drawing the conclusion from reading these Twitter files and other things that, though this is evidence of some massive bias against conservatives. I, I don't know that, I don't think Taibbi and the others are actually making those claims in anything. That, they're just, they're show, and they're showing you actual documents. Unlike, now I believe, I'm sure the Chrissy Teigen request actually exists, but we're just, you know, we're hearing this. Like in, in Rolling Stone, it's, we're here, anonymous sources are telling us there were all these kinds of requests. With the Twitter files, we can actually see, we're seeing, like, you can't argue that that email isn't real, right? It, it's real, yes, we see it. But we're only seeing some documents. So again, yeah. so Taibbi, I agree says, with you and Taibbi not, says he's told about these Trump requests, but those aren't disclosed to him. Yeah. So why aren't we seeing them? And why doesn't Taibbi and some of the other Twitter files, I don't have to focus this all on mm -hmm. Taibbi, but why do the Twitter file journalists as a whole not demand more transparency in those kind of documents? Look, people have their own political interests. I'm, you know, I personally wouldn't be as obsessed with something that uh, hurts Republicans as it, something that hurts leftists, because I'm a leftist and obviously people, mm -hmm. that's, that's completely fair. But then to go ahead and make representations like Matt has done and others have done, that he just hasn't seen the bias against the left the way he sees bias against the right, when he clearly, by his own admission, didn't even request follow-up to look at the documents about what the Trump requests were even about, you, he shouldn't have made those representations. He has been making representations that the bias goes one way, as we saw in that clip. Yeah, I, I, I guess um, I, I agree with you that one ought to be very careful about making generalizations about the direction of things like the bias it, it, when, when you're only seeing a fraction of the, when, and they admit they're only seeing a fraction of the emails, and that it's like it's hard to see every. It's so many documents. Yeah, and it's it takes hard to time. Things. Long so I, spend millions of dollars. Maybe there ought to be more caution with respect to that. Yeah. But 
they are, I mean, they are showing, they're showing us actual evidence, incontrovertible evidence of some really bad stuff because yes. we're seeing actual documents. Yes, yes, no, no disagreement there. And, and, the, I hope and the mainstream media only cares if Trump got mad, they, they, their, their interest begins and ends with Trump did something kind of dumb. Yeah, and I think I asked on the so last- so telling and so disgusting, frankly. Well, the last time we had some Twitter file journalists on, I think I, I said to them, look, do, do you think that if there were more ideologically diverse journalists or, or investigation into files that were le more convenient for liberals, um, that the liberal press would take more interest yeah. in the story in a way that would actually elevate all of or the information. Or if this is all an advertisement out. to give Brianna access to the Twitter files, <laughs> look, I am all on board I, with I'm that. happy to look. And I think that the, the, the positive benefit of this would be more mainstream coverage of all of what the Twitter files has uncovered, which I think is important. Yeah. All right, we will. We are not done talking about this subject today. We're uh, we're gonna discuss with actually one of the Twitter files journalists, Michael Schellenberger, a bit later. Uh, we'll have more rising right after this. Let me put it to you directly. What do you say to the charge that if you are a climate change campaigner, but you also travel around the world on a private jet, you're a hypocrite? Well, I. I, by the gold standard of funding Climeworks to do direct air capture that far exceeds my family's carbon footprint. And I spend billions of dollars on, on climate innovation. So, you know, should I stay at home and not come to Kenya and learn about farming and malaria? comfortable with the idea that not only am I not part of the problem by paying for the offsets, but I also through the billions that my Breakthrough Energy Group is spending, that I'm part of the solution. That was, of course, Microsoft billionaire Bill Gates responding to criticisms of late that using private jets causes more harm to the environment than most everyday usage from average people across the globe. Now, he sets up a kind of a false choice there. You know, am I not supposed to come to Kenya and learn about the environment and help people? As though there is an option to come to Kenya on a much more energy efficient public Private jet is the only jet. way to get to Kenya. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous, right? And moreover, I mean, this idea What, that... do you want Bill Gates to fly coach? <laughs> That's the thing he doesn't With the rest to... of us peasants? He doesn't even have to fly coach. He can fly, fir fly, fly first yeah. class in a commercial plane, but apparently that is, like, beyond his conception. He can sit next to me. I won't say anything to him. <laughs> I, I, I never talk to my neighbors on the plane. Put in my headphones. I play my Nintendo oh, Switch. Oh, I thought you were going to say you're going to put on your mask, and I was going to be shocked. Oh. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> never. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, the, and also the bigger, I think the bigger issue here is this mentality that I think a lot of folks who are more working class and who are members of the global south are concerned about when we're talking about who is going to have to pay the cost for a move away from fossil fuels. Is it going to be that all the poor people and people in the global south are told they can't use their little, uh, we call them in Kenya, I used to live in Kenya myself, I grew up there, Jiko, Jiko stoves, little gas-burning stoves that are very common to cook your food in your house or on the side of the road to grill corn Don't let the like Democrats that. know about those. <laughs> Are we going to focus on that? Are we going to focus on getting people off gas ovens and things like that instead of the big ticket items where most of the, the pollution that's put into the, to the air and into the world happens via 
like 10 corporations. It's a very small number of polluters that are causing most of the problem. And people like billionaires like Bill Gates who are directly profiting from that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, um, it, it's very, it, it, this is very indicative, I think, because on the one hand, yes, overall is his private jetting, it, it, he says he does other you know, things to support climate change. I can understand the attitude that on net he's doing more to fight climate change and the fact that he flies a private jet doesn't, it doesn't count against that or doesn't overtake that. But what it shows is that people, even people as supposedly climate conscious as Bill Gates, there are just comforts that they don't want to give up, that they really would resent having to give up. Mm -hmm. And that's true of ordinary people as well. Yeah. And so when your whole policy is, well, people need to sacrifice for the good of the planet, and you're not willing to give up your private jet, you can understand why maybe the people of Kenya are going to, they, they like the stove they have, or the people of America, or yeah. of anywhere else. The little folk, the rest of us, yeah. why, why even if it's for the good of the planet, we're, we're going to like resist your little policy because there are just some comforts that people don't want to not do yeah, look, without, I, I including think, Bill Gates. I, I think that some of the, and you can dispute the studies, and I'm not actually sure what's even true at this point, but you know, some of the gas stove stuff is about um, the air quality health inside your house. It's not actually about the environment at all. To the extent that people want to be healthier and that the government's willing to subsidize those kind of changes, great. Again, making the cost not fall on normal people, but actually making it easier for people to make healthier choices, I think, is a good thing. And for all of that people like to rag on Greta Thunberg, she puts her money where her mouth is in this kind of stuff and like sails sailboats across the Atlantic to come to environmental conferences because she doesn't want to be a hypocrite the way that Bill Gates is being a hypocrite right now. Moreover, this idea Does that she, she really she takes a sailboat. Yeah, she she's she very famously is like windswept pigtails across the Atlantic taking forever to get everywhere because she doesn't use airplanes like that. So, uh, moreover, this idea that carbon capture that he's paying for carbon capture technology that's going to offset emissions is such a misnomer. If he really cares about the environment, you should be paying for that carbon capture to offset all of the pre-existing emissions, not emissions, not using an excuse to even do more emissions, right? You're trying to not just be personally carbon neutral, you're trying to actually bring down the carbon emissions of the entire planet because we're all in this mm -hmm. together, not just basically have a cover story for why you can take your private jet to Nairobi. Mm -hmm. And it's also easy for elites to recommend getting rid of things that they're not using anyway, where because they're using the private jet type thing. Yeah. Nobody's talking about taking the private jets away, so they can take away your comforts, but nobody's threatening theirs. Makes me think of uh, my, one of my colleagues at Reason Magazine, Christian Brischke, he did great reporting a couple years ago on um, efforts to ban uh, plastic straws on the on the assertion that you know the plastic in the ocean is, a, is it is a major problem and it's because of plastic straws but he found out that so the plastic straws specifically in the ocean there was like one turtle that got a straw stuck in its nose once it's like 0.00001% of the plastic in the ocean the plastic in the ocean is commercial fishing equipment that yeah. was left behind so if you're going to have a policy to address this yeah. you need to address uh, hold companies accountable for leaving yeah. fishing equipment something like that it's like taking away the convenience of straws from people yeah. was not but, actually but that's, that's that problem. not an accident for since the beginning of the environmental movement corporations have funded yeah. environmental policies yeah. that shift blame onto individual consumer behavior so that they yes. don't have to take responsibility for them having the bulk of emissions and, and pollution. I totally agree with yeah. that. Well, Monday, ri Monday's rising co-host and deputy opinion editor at Newsweek, Batya Ungar-Sargon, was on Fox News the other night with Greg Gutfeld talking about the whole private jet debate. Let's watch a little bit of that.
Yeah, is it selfish to want to be asleep during surgery? How dare you hate the earth? <laughs> the green movement is just the latest way that leftist elites use to launder their own privilege as some sort of like moral high ground and then demand that the working class pay for it. Have you ever noticed that they won't touch their private jets? Their motto is private jets for us, for you, the bus. Or now, you know, surgery with no anesthesia. Oh, God, you know, I know... I guess that was the hook for that was uh, surgery without anesthesia <laughs> I to save uh, to save the planet. I'm not Sounds sure horrible. what anesthesia has anesthesia. to do with uh, that. I'm well, sure probably they someone was recommending it. taking it away. But look, I, I, I mean, the the thing I would just add to this, I mean, they're completely right about the hypocrisy of it. But we all should be moving toward the bus. It's the the issue is demanding something of the public that you're not willing to do yourself. That's a problem. That's an that's an inequality feature, not a bug. But that doesn't mean that that climate change isn't real. It doesn't mean that we are dealing with incredible amounts of particulate matter in our water, water supply at our beaches, you know, infecting our air. Some untold millions, there's calculations, um, uh, what's his name? The, the uh, New York Magazine journalist, uh, David, whose name I'm blocking his name, wrote that a, a compelling book about tracking all of the millions of deaths that happen in a country like China every year just from air pollution, right? Because there's so many people there. I'm um, David Wallace Wells, uh, his book. So, you know, it is a real problem and everyone's going to have to deal and our society's going to have to change the same way that we don't have like smoke plumes in the middle of cities anymore because we realize that there's air control issues, the same way that we don't send little kids down chimneys to clean them, the same way that we don't dump sewage in our streets the way we used to. There are going to have to be changes and some of them are going to be inconvenient, just like, I'm sure the first person who couldn't empty their uh, piss pot in the street was irritated that they had to do something else or have a toilet installed or whatever. There's going to have to be changes. But the problem is those changes, those the responsibilities shouldn't fall disproportionately on the poor and working class. The burden should be evenly shared. Being forced to take the bus feels like being forced to go back to not having a toilet or something. Really? Because people, people in Amsterdam who are living in these commutable cities, riding their bikes in the fresh air up and, long, up and, and, up and down dams, don't seem like they're in a, in a worse off place than the folks in LA all in their individual cars stuck in traffic for four hours a day. See who you have to ride the bus with in, uh, in our cities? Well, that would change if it weren't, weren't so socioeconomically stratified. That's exactly what we're talking about right well, now, you know, you know my, my uh, commuter transportation solution, of course. Individually riding your, driving your car. And, Scooters. Okay, Scooters but yesterday you drove. I don't, we don't need to get, get into the details of your commute. Yesterday Scooters I almost are great, got a though. ticket. Yeah. More rising after this. <laughs> Stay with us. MSNBC's Morning Joe and political analyst and former White House press secretary Jen Psaki had this to say about yesterday's House Twitter hearings and the Twitter files. The problem also with these hearings are you look at these these issues, they never produce it. The Twitter files. You remember the Twitter files? Oh boy, yes. that was right. Like this is gonna be the end. It's fascinating that the Twitter files had such an extraordinary blind spot and ended up being the most biased thing I've ever seen in my yeah. life. Because we find out after the Twitter files come out, I guess Elon didn't give them all the information about like Twitter executives cowering in the corner and doing whatever Donald Trump wanted them to do. Mm. You've got the Twitter files. You've got the New York Post, uh, uh, the, the, the Hunter Biden laptop thing. These things have been looked at. It's just like when when they were, you know, who was the special Durham. It's just like Durham. I'd read Durham's pleadings and I'd say, OK, I, there has to be something here. 
Yeah. And Meek will, Meek will tell you, I read one pleading all day and I called about 30 legal experts. I go, what's here? And every one of them said, been reading it. I don't think anything's here. Conservatives keep doing this. They did it with Durham and their witch hunt against the FBI. They did it on Hunter Biden's laptop and their witch hunt against Twitter. They did it on the Twitter files and their witch hunt. Like, only, they only want to go after blue witches. They don't want to go after red witches. These things never ever produce the punch they expect. No, I mean, and to go back to Mike Markle's earlier point, I mean, this is like a word salad of right-wing craziness. Incredible. Twitter Files author Michael Schellenberger joins us now to weigh in on this and tell us what's coming next in the Twitter Files. Uh, Michael, I assume you saw a lot of the hearing yesterday. In fact, you were, t you were tweeting about it, so I know you were watching. Um, I, I think it's uh, I'm, I get this reaction from the mainstream media. It's like they finally started paying attention to the Twitter files, and they only care now that there's some evidence that, uh, that you know, Donald Trump also abused his power to order, you know, Twitter to take down some dumb Chrissy Teigen comment. Uh, but, but, but they want to—so they, they only care that Donald Trump did it, and then they want to write off the rest of it as, as, a, as a nothing burger or whatever term he used. Yeah, I was I was dis disappointed by the mainstream media's reaction. Not not completely surprised. I thought that um, you know I think we've seen a lot of very uncomfortable uh, engagements by the FBI putting the pressure on Twitter uh, to engage in censorship. I think we also saw a very disturbing pattern of behavior around the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop. You know, we did learn yesterday that the head of trust and safety at Twitter, Yul Roth was indeed overruled in his assessment that the laptop was legitimate and real uh, by his superiors. We know that um, we had documented that Jim Baker, the former FBI general counsel, had been really the main person inside Twitter demanding that the that the tweets be censored. You know, I, it's, a, it's a very, it was a funny event. I mean, I think there was a few interesting things out of it. I mean, Jim Baker, the person that I've been most critical of, actually made a good suggestion, which is that the government ought to restrict uh, how much FBI agents and other government officials are out there pressuring social media companies. For me, the whole thing made a very strong case for transparency. We just need to, we, if you're going to have this special right, which is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which gives this huge liability protection to social media companies, then they need to be transparent about how they're doing content moderation. I thought the other interesting thing was just when um, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had a chance to speak, she was actually demanding more censorship by Twitter, uh, particularly of libs of TikTok, around a controversy I think is very interesting, but basically one that, in my view, is a classic case of something where it, the solution is more speech, not censorship. I, I was also happy to see, because again, these things are not easily definable. Um, Cori Bush, who's a very progressive Democrat, raising concerns about the excess of power in the hands of the social media companies. That's a view I strongly share. I don't think that this is an issue that fits easily on left and right. I think I, I personally have become more sympathetic to the libertarian point of view. I never thought of myself as libertarian, but I do increasingly view um, restrictions on freedom of speech uh, as very dangerous and should be incredibly limited. And that this constant government pressure on the social media companies it remains a huge problem, one that can only be solved, I think, through transparency. Michael, what's so interesting about this, 
I think you're right. Obviously, it's the case that the mainstream media is only interested in the Twitter files now because they can score some points. And the, re the way that they're scoring points is to say, okay, the Twitter files has been painted as a kind of um, social media-backed attack on the right wing. Social media companies are biased for the left um, and liberals, and they, they um, censored to hurt Trump and suppress this Hunter Biden story that was going to hurt uh, uh, Joe Biden potentially in the 2020 election. Now that there's evidence that there is more in the way of uh, the Trump administration trying to leverage its power to suppress on Twitter, now they're suddenly interested. Okay, fair enough. I also think that Matt Taibbi, who's pushed back and said, well, I did report that there were requests that came from the Trump administration initially in the first Twitter files, so this is nothing new. I think that's also legitimate. However, I think this is something that we've discussed here on the show, that the way that the Twitter files has been framed by some, I think, some of the journalists who have been reporting on the Twitter files, some people who are not the journalists, but other other folks um, in the community, have really pushed that particular framing that this isn't just about government using its power on the social media companies to censor, which is a general good you know uh, general story that I think would appeal to many, but specifically the government has been using its power to hurt the right. That being the case. Do you think, in retrospect, there would be some value? There would have been some value in going forward. There would be some value in having a more comprehensive review of the files, having more inquiry into whether or not certain files that are inconvenient to the narrative that the right is being targeted here are actually being disclosed, and for a more ideologically diverse group of journalists to be privy to those documents, because I do think the reporting that is coming out of here is so important. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, first of all, I, I would love to see more journalists involved in the Twitter files. Um, I was constantly, I mean, I was invited in by, by a journalist. I was not invited in by Elon Musk. I was invited in by my friend Barry Weiss. We then um, uh, uh, you know, made the case to bring in Lee Fong, um, who's from The Intercept. I don't think anybody would consider him a conservative. My colleague, Leighton Woodhouse. Um, actually, most of us, I think, except for you know Barry, who maybe has been more in the center for longer, most of us do come from the left. Um, and as you pointed out, I mean, Matt did point out those instances where the Trump administration was asking for censorship. I had never just, I, we, we had, none of us had heard of the Chrissy Teigen demand by President Trump. Are you kidding me? We would have loved to have reported on that. We didn't find that. Uh, we certainly would have reported that. You may also remember that um, Ro Khanna, the, the Democratic uh, member of Congress from, the, from Silicon Valley, played an important role in pushing back against Twitter executives, um, Vijay Gada in particular, um, expressing concern about the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop. So you have a, you know, and he came off, and that was, I think, I believe in Matt Taibbi's first or second thread. So we certainly never wanted to portray this as a partisan issue at all. I do think it's also the case that most of the, the disfavored voices were on the right. But I don't think it was exclusively that way. And I think there's various reasons for that. I also think some of this is a little bit hard to classify since it does have to do more on a less on a left right spectrum and maybe more on a kind of libertarian versus more restrictive kind of view of things. But, yeah, I mean, look, I, I would love to see all the Twitter files released. Um, you know, I'm I, I don't I'm not the owner of Twitter. Um, sometimes, you know, I'll encourage things of Elon and 
you know, obviously a lot of people are lobbying him to do various things. I yeah, hope like, that that's I, the direction I, I think in. that is, that right there is the concern. It's not any of your guys' fault, I think. It's pretty clear. But as Elon Musk is the one who's basically in control of the trove and who gets what and who sees what, I mean, Matt was asked um, by people yesterday why he didn't report on all of the, the Trump requests. And his answer was that he didn't see those requests. He didn't have that information. He says, yeah. I, was, I was, however, told by sources that there had been requests from the Trump White House, which I reported, but I didn't have the actual text. So people are asking, okay, well, you were told that this information existed, but it wasn't disclosed to you. Why? Were decisions being made not by y'all, it's not your fault, but by people at Twitter, by Elon Musk, to disclose certain kinds of files that got thorough reporting to you, you all, but not disclose files that would paint a different kind of political narrative? And is there some responsibility, then the, the follow-up question, is there some responsibility on the journalist to have interrogated what documents they were being shown and whether or not they were being used in this way um, by Twitter and, and Elon Musk, who have different interests than investigative journalists who are going through these documents. Yeah, I mean, just, just first of all, uh, Elon never suggested a single search for any of us, or I should say for myself and everybody I know, I never heard of him making a request. Um, he, we never had any requests denied. Um, and I should say, you know, I, I've read all the threads more than once as carefully as I can, so I can speak to them. But um, my focus was on the January 6th, uh, the post-January 6th decision to deplatform President Trump and also on the Hunter Biden laptop. I also assisted on some of the visibility filtering, as they called shadow banning. And um, so there, that was not coming from Elon at all. It's more just an issue of, I, and that's why I say I think most of the censorship was directed more towards conservatives. That that don't, I, I think that's just what was going on. I did read the Rolling Stone article that came out yesterday uh, that used the word database of Republicans. I mean, we never saw anything in any of I'm very skeptical that, that I never heard anybody talk like that about a database of Republicans. That sounded like I think that was a quote from an uh, from an anonymous source in the article. Yeah, that's why um, I, I prefer to just talk about what Matt has said. I mean, Matt has said, I mean, th this is the issue. He says that he knew that there was some document existed. There was some evidence that Trump had made these requests, and he reported on it, rightfully so. Complete credit yeah. where credit's due. But that he was not given those documents. So that now we, we're living in a world where we have knowledge that there is some document that looks bad for the Trump administration, frankly, behaving in the same way that the Biden administration and liberals have behaved, but that, that those documents haven't been disclosed. And does that raise any any red flags. It's not that Elon Musk is sitting there personally striking out redacting documents. Well, and, and let me add to that. But what choices what, are being What made I'd love priority? to see, Michael, and maybe this would make for a good subsequent Twitter files, you know, is the nature of the So I think it's improper for political officials, government employees, any, you know, to be having this level of, of, uh, of uh, communication to the companies, regardless of what it is. But if the Republican requests are substantially of a nature, and it was almost acknowledged so, somewhat quietly in that Rolling Stone article, that the nature of the Republican, Republican request more often is, why did you take this thing down? If, if, the, if the FBI employees and the CDC employees and the, and the Biden White House employees are all saying, take down content, and the Republicans are meekly objecting, I might still say I don't think Republicans should be talking to Twitter that way, but it would be almost of a different nature. So that would be, you know, would that be something to explore in a, in a future in a future release? I, I, it would be helpful to know what what the characteristic of Republican and and Trump esque uh, overtures to Twitter is as well. 
Yeah, and and by the way, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. We definitely saw a lot of that, and I I did uh, tweet out yesterday the um, Twitter uh, document showing that they had uh, put a aggressive visibility filter. I believe that's the exact language on Congressperson uh, Lauren uh, Lauren Boebert, and um, and then also we saw in the testimony that Yul Roth said that they did not inform people, including members of Congress, if they were getting these aggressive visibility. Fi- uh, filters. But yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I'm actually not familiar with what Matt said, but I, I'm very confident that if we have, if, if anybody found those documents of Trump or Republicans demanding censorship, we would definitely love to put that out there. We're just, you know, very interested yeah. journalists, very interested in covering this. I personally am an independent. I think most people are independents. We're just trying to kind of read it for what we saw. And the way that we did the searches was oriented around things that we knew were big issues for the company going in because you had to have something specific to focus on. You couldn't just, you know, be like, we want every email or document from 2020 or 2021. It just would be too overwhelming. But I do think there's much more work to do. And I, I, I will say, I think when you're in a situation where we see a lot of abuse of power, the re, the the underlying cause is there's somebody's got too much power. And we have, you know, our founding fathers, um, who I've appreciated as I've gotten older a little bit more, they understood that you need counteracting powers to that. And I think we all they also understood and the courts have understood that you need transparency. So for me, I hope that this conversation evolves to a place where you could get people like Cori Bush and Lauren Boebert to actually agree on the need for making transparency a requirement for having Section 230 privileges. Mm. Well, we have to leave it there, but it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us more about this, Michael. Thanks for having me, guys. And we'll have more Rising right after these messages. Senator Rick Scott was interviewed on CNN about whether he does actually want to cut Social Security and Medicare. Let's watch. The fact that the president is now using this as an attack line, was it a mistake to propose this? No. First off, nobody believes that I want to cut Medicare or Social Security. I've never said it. I've never said it. in that same plan, I said Congress needs to once a year tell the American public how they're going to make sure those programs don't go bankrupt because they're in the verge of bankrupts. And here's the difference between Joe Biden and me. I've never proposed it. In 1975, he has a bill, a sunset bill, and it says it requires every program to be looked at freshly at least every four years, not, not just cost, but worthiness. And, Caitlin, he said, when I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare, Medicaid, veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in government. So here's the difference. I've never proposed it. He proposed it in the bill, and he fought for it year after year after year. You're talking about what he proposed back in, you know, 1975, almost 50 years ago. But... You have said he's twisting your words, but isn't that the same thing that what you're proposing now, what you rolled out last summer? Mine says, mine says clear. Mine says clear. You know, if it's worth keeping, we're going to keep it. In his case, okay, I mean, he proposed a bill to just sunset everything. I've, I've never done that. I've been very clear. I am not for cutting Social Security, Medicare. That, that quote says he's clearly, he proposed it year after year after year to reduce Medicare and Social Security year after year. I've never done that. I don't believe in that. I think we've got to preserve those benefits. 
Caitlin Collins is doing really good work. I wonder if Don Lemon screamed at her after that interview. <laughs> Look, it's a good thing for Americans that everybody is now running away from their efforts to cut Social Security and Medicare. I talked they about that. They are running. That, that Biden clip that he was quoting from, I quoted in my radar yesterday and played the audio of him making that quote in full. That was audio that Bernie used in a campaign ad against Joe Biden back in 2020 for exactly this reason, that a lot of people on both sides of the aisle have routinely suggested cutting these social programs that so many Americans rely on and which are very popular. But what we should learn from this, from both the Biden example and the Rick Scott example, is that everybody, all of these corporate hacks propose cutting Social Security, and they always do, throw, so, do so through sneaky ways, like saying they're going to just reevaluate everything on, a, on an annual basis. We're going to sunset a huge block of policies without zeroing in on Social Security and Medicare specifically, so hoping that it gets under the radar, hoping that the public doesn't notice, and that we all have to stay hypervigilant. Because I don't, I don't think, he, I think he's right. I don't think you can really trust Joe Biden to protect these programs no, any more than you can trust Rick Scott or the Republicans to. Everybody at some point has tried to take a bite out of this particular apple. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to the point he's getting at there, Joe Biden tried to humiliate Republicans the other day for sometimes expressing and, and 10 years ago, having much more of an appetite to cut these programs. And now Rick Scott is turning around and saying, well, so did Joe Biden. You think Joe and Biden was trying to humiliate conservatives last night? No, no, no. I, but, well, he the had the effect of humiliating them, pointing out hypocrisy on this issue. So Rick Scott's saying Joe Biden is also hip, hypocritical Yeah, I, I think issue. that's completely fair. But let's be clear. Joe Biden, to his credit, said not all Republicans. He caveated the Dickens yeah. out of it. He said not all Republicans. This is not a party consensus by any means. But some of you, not 50 years ago, but last month, last week, have specifically said that you wanted to cut Social Security. And I don't Medicare. know how many people said it last month, last week. No, they week. did. They did. And the leader I mean, the, the, uh, the, they, they, the, the Mike Lee clip that people yeah. pulled up, that was from 10 years ago. Yeah, but I don't, I don't have to go back 10 years. I know yeah. for a fact, because it was reported on and talked about on the left by left media who talks about these things, not just because it makes a Republican look bad, but because we actually care about protecting these programs around midterms, where, where Republicans were clear that part of their strategy when they regained the House was going to be that they were going to hold up the debt ceiling specifically to have a war over Social Security and Medicare. This was widely reported in left there, media. Aren't there some federal programs you would like to see just automatically sunset every I'm, couple No, years? we're talking about Social Security and, and Medicare. And those are programs that are overwhelmingly popular and that Republicans know they can't come out openly and say they want to cut. Democrats also know they cannot come out openly and say they want to cut them, even though Democrats have tried to do so, including Barack Obama back in 2012. In 2016, there were a series of hit pieces on Bernie Sanders saying Bernie Sanders didn't respect our first black president and said he was going to primary him in 2012. Well, why did Bernie at that time float the idea that he might challenge Barack Obama in that race? Because Barack Obama was putting feelers out about cutting Social Security. And, Biden, and, and, and um, sorry, Bernie said, I will run against Barack Obama if he lays a finger on Social Security. So Barack Obama backed off to, that, to the threat. So again and again, this is not a partisan issue, but it is absolutely the case that mo most recently, Republicans have put a target on Medicare and Social Security's back, and it is perfectly fair for Joe Biden to call that out. I do wish Democrats were in a better moral position here by having a candidate that had actually dedicated his career to protecting those programs instead of a Johnny-come-lately like Joe Biden, who now has decided it's politically advantageous to hit Republicans on this. I do think that it's deeply hypocritical. Yeah. But 
There are federal programs I would love to see just automatically close off, and then we can decide if we really want the defense budget to be that high, if we really want uh, grants to local law enforcement to buy tanks and things like that. I think that even, even though I think that the defense budget needs to be dramatically reduced, dramatically, um, I don't think that automatic, uh, automatic kind of like routine adjustments to budgets that aren't tied to what actual needs are, are smart. I, I think that you should reduce budgets based on need. You should reduce, reduce budgets based on waste. You should reduce budgets based yeah. on a change I wish we would do that. We almost never Not do just, that. oh, well, it's the end of the year and it's time to reduce the budget, so no matter what happens, no matter who suffers, no matter what allies are abandoned, or whatever happens. Yeah. I mean, the budget's always bigger than it was the year before. We never give less money to any of these programs. Well, we do. We cut, we cut budgets all the time. We cut the IRS budget. That's why we're that's in this. That's the one example no, that's why we're, we're That's exactly why we're in this place where we're talking about refunding the IRS. What the Democrats have proposed, what happened at the end of last year, was only returning it to the, the, the funding levels that existed 10, 15 years ago, when, I might add, billionaires were taxed at a much higher rate because they had the resources Rambal to Rambal has proposed return. just returning our overall budget to the immediately before the pandemic rate, and that would have the effect of balancing it. Right. And there are pandemic-era policies that are in effect because they are, people continue to be in economic crisis. Now, if you don't care and if you say it doesn't matter, people are relying on these policies, it doesn't matter if it will cause this number of evictions, this number of people to lose access to health care, this many people to, you know, to have to go you know, on, mm -hmm. on the streets or whatever, then do it. But people cannot pretend that you can automatically just cut funding and like people don't rely on it. I mean, there are political consequences. Unfortunately, we live in a country where the people who pay those political, the, the consequences of those kinds of actions are disproportionately poor and they don't vote. So yeah, the government does routinely cut funding to policies that benefit the poor. I mean, I we agree saw this child tax credit get dropped in April, even though it literally halved the number of children that lived in poverty in the United States of America. But what you're not going to see is any compromising on something like the repealing the Trump tax cuts. You saw that um, that salt tax deduction had a bunch of Democrats and corporate Republicans out against it. You saw that um, Joe Manchin basically wouldn't pass Build Back Better in part because there was all of this fight over maintaining corporate tax rates for the rich. I mean, this is why we can't, this is why we always spend beyond our means. Democrats don't really show any interest in cutting anything, and Republicans only show a selective every now and then interest in cutting only the things that are very popular. Well, some Democrats do have an interest in cutting things like taxes for yeah. the rich and wealth tax. Not all Democrats, not enough Democrats to be sure. But even Biden, one of the things that he brought up in a State of the Union speech was this billionaire's tax. There are only like a thousand billionaires in the entire country. What does it say about our democracy? That there are a, a, a small cohort, like a thousand billionaires, whose number, by the way, have grown like 30% in the context of the economic crisis the rest of us are going through. But there's only a thousand billionaires, but they have the power to crush a popular policy like a billionaire's tax, even though so few Americans would be affected by such a thing and it would inert to the benefit of so many of us. That's exactly I, the problem. I don't know that soaking our very richest Americans even more is a long-term solution. All right, Robbie, problem, pour one out for the billionaires as always. We'll just confiscate their wealth and put them in show. Make them pay their fair share. Yes, I they should pay, pay as much in taxes as their secretaries they do. Do pay, they do pay not. way they more pay than their secretaries. Zero in taxes. They have, Jeff Jeff Bezos paid zero zero. In taxes. All right, more rising right after this.
the IRS is floating a new program to better track tips in the service industry. Under the Service Industry Tip Compliance Agreement, restaurants, bars, food delivery, and other establishments where workers earn money from tips would voluntarily participate. The new program would facilitate the agency's monitoring and taxing efforts of the service industry, which currently requires workers to simply declare what they earn. Right now, most relying on gratuity for an income make woefully less than minimum wage, a point Republican Congressman Thomas Massey poked at in a tweet, saying, quote, how many waiters and waitresses are making more than $400,000 per year, Mr. President, a reference to Joe Biden's commitment not to raise taxes for anybody uh, earning over that amount of money, implication being that this IRS change in policy will, in fact, amount to a constructive tax on these lower-wage workers. Yeah, I don't think anyone wants to see, not, not my libertarian self, not your left progressive self, wants to see uh, the IRS focus more of its attention on tipped workers or anyone of that sort. Um, that had a very sinister sound, uh, tipping compliance authority yeah. type deal. I mean, this is, this is ex exactly the complaint that, uh, that I have raised and a lot of other people on this show that, you know, give the, give the IRS more resources and they're going to target um, waiters and waitresses and Uber drivers and people of that nature, uh, people whose, in whose income sources are uh, complicated from a taxing standpoint, and, which is frustrating for them. You know, these people making not a lot of money, not anywhere near the kinds of, you know, we talk about the people you want to tax, go after people uh, who have a lot of money and are finding creative ways to, you know, hot, protect their income from taxation. People who have very, who work multiple part-time jobs, have, have, are part of the gig economy, have these complicated income structures. And the, for the IRS to spend more time on them, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's horrible. Yes, yeah, certainly. I'm not sure that this is a resource issue. I don't know if implementing mm -hmm. this policy is a consequence of the IRS having more resources. What we've seen historically is that when the IRS were, was funded at the levels that the Democrats wanted to now be funded at going forward, 10 years ago, they actually had the resources to go after more um, out wealthier people, that going after folks who have teams of attorneys to hide their tax filings, you know, their, tax, uh, their income and wealth all over the world, et cetera, actually requires a different kind of staffer, an investigator, to go after those kinds of um, individuals. And that, frankly, without resources, they go for low-hanging fruit. They pick on poor people. Um, the most tax-audited, uh, rather, city in America is this City in in Mass and uh, sorry in Mississippi, where something like fifty percent of the population lives in poverty, and that's because it's easy to send out one of these like inquiry letters that basically do this really superficial audit when they're poor uh, and they're easily coerced and beaten. And this feels this has the smell of that to me. This is low hanging fruit. Oh, people are using Venmo. People are getting around the tax system. Just make them report their Venmo earnings. I, I think that regardless of what is causing this policy. There should be public pushback against it. And I also think it should uh, incite a conversation about whether or not we should still have this kind of two-tiered system where waiters and waitresses, you know, waitstaff are basically excluded from minimum wage requirements because of this tipped pay scale. The origins of a tipped pay scale, like it or not, historically is rooted in so many of these tipped workers being mm. black folks um, who were historically disadvantaged and cut out of the wage market. They were cut out of the minimum wage provisions purposefully um, so that they wouldn't have to be paid um, these basic minimum wage requirements. And now there's this kind of ridiculous legacy that ends up having like this two-tiered system. So do we want to move to a system where there's, you, you can no longer pay someone $2.50 an hour because they are Do you have the sense waiter? that workers 
prefer the tipped system? No, I mean, the, yes and no, it depends. There's some do and some don't, right? It depends, right? I, right? So for example, there was a movement in um, a ballot initiative, I believe, maybe in 2018-ish here in DC, um, to get rid of a, a tipped wage. And the reality is a lot of business interests align against it. Yeah. Because they don't, you know, they would rather not have to be responsible to pay their own workers out of their own pockets to get the, the cost get passed on to consumers. Of course, everywhere else in the world, if, if you've left the country, if you've traveled, you know, that nobody does it like we do. They just pay their employees wages. And you as a consumer don't have to be worried about that aspect of providing additional service fees when you go to a restaurant. And most of the world seems to be happy with that sort of arrangement. It's very embedded in our culture, tipping. I think I'm always uncomfortable when I travel overseas and I don't have that obligation to leave a tip, and you're like, okay, I guess I'll leave just a little bit something anyway. But I think, generally speaking, we should be moving to a system where people just get paid mm -hmm. fair wages. I mean, to your point, I remember that ballot initiative. It was, it failed in D.C. Um, and, and you got to look at who was for it and who was against it if you want to have a sense of whose interest it served. And it was business interests, the you know, mm -hmm. who were aligned against it, not um, staffers, for the most yeah. part. Well, prob probably all star staffers who get. Tipped a lot, or sure, they, yeah. sure. Do you remember that uh, restaurant? And oh, we're not. You're not a New Yorker. There's a there's a restaurant in um, in a Union Square that was famously staffed all by models, aspiring like theater people and models in New York City. And you can imagine a world <laughs> where if you if you are uh, someone who attracts tips, <laughs> you know, if you're yeah. someone who 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 uh, enthralls customers. Do, do like people, people really do? Would. Do people tip? drastically differently depending on the service they get still anymore? Like, I feel like I just tip the same thing regardless. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I mean, that's how I feel, but I don't yeah. think that's how other people feel. And you see this also. People I, I, really think about it, whether to do 15% or 20% or something. Yeah, or? and a lot of restaurants have mandatory fee, mm -hmm. tip, tip If you have a certain number of party. Or not even. Yeah. I, I went to a place, just two of us, um, last weekend, and it was clearly the kind of place that is frequented by perhaps younger kids, college kids, maybe people who don't tip as mm -hmm. much, because we both observed, you know, my dining companion and I observed that there was a built-in tip on the bill, which we thought was mm -hmm. it, kind of weird. I mean, it's not that we right. minded, but it was weird, partly because also we wouldn't have noticed, perhaps, if you know we hadn't checked and then we would have double-tipped. But yeah, I think that a lot of places are moving in that direction, either because there are a lot of people who are skipping out and not tipping, and that really hurts the, the staff, right? Because they are reliant on a substantial part of their wages coming from tips. So with, without having to finagle all of that, instead of having to kind of like build it into the menu, instead of having to like force tips, just pay people the wages that they have earned. And everybody can have settled expectations going into a dining experience. Yeah, I don't have strong feelings about it one way or the other. But uh, well, taxpayers look forward to uh, looking forward to cashing in their refund check may have to wait a little longer. This week, the IRS urged the public to hold off filing the 2022 taxes. Certain states implemented a special refund as part of relief efforts, which the IRS says makes the process of filing more complex as each state operates under different rules. The agency said in a statement that they hope to have, quote, additional clarity for as many states and taxpayers as possible next week. It's just the word. The more confusing they make it, the more people are going to inadvertently not pay the right thing. And they know what you owe. They could just tell you. 
it just gets more confusing between state and local, and, and you know people have multiple sources of income, and you have to report on all of those, and uh, it's 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 yeah. There's been great people. reporting. I'm looking at a ProPublica study from 2019, our article right now from 2019 that details TurboTax's 20-year fight to stop Americans from filing their taxes Ugh. for free. There's incredible lobbying efforts Horrible. to protect the ability of these kind of companies to prepare your taxes for you, to keep it complicated so you can't do it yourself, so that it's onerous, so that your tax refunds, which a lot of people rely on substantively for their fiscal planning for the year to be delayed. It's a mess. And nobody is looking out for, for these kinds of um, fees that accrue disproportionately to working class people. It's the worst sort of cronyist of government capture of, of, a, of a sector of the economy. It's yeah. terrible. I will say, I gave, I gave Biden some credit in his speech yesterday for focusing on these kind of consumer issues. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't mention tax filings. But if he wanted to keep on this populist thread that got him a lot of plaudits yesterday, if he wants to go speech. in that direction. He would uh, he would have some libertarian support. I didn't like some of his ideas along these lines, but that absolutely cut out the uh, TurboTax middle H and R block. Just totally yeah. useless. <laughs> Biden's going to put H and R block on the block. <laughs> on the chopping block. <laughs> on the block. chopping block. Chop. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You, you heard it. You heard it from us first, Biden. Free advice. We'll have more right, rising for you right after this. A new revelation broke this week about what caused last year's explosion of Nord Stream gas pipelines in the Baltic Sea. Investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch alleges the U.S. is behind the attacks. Writing in a substack, the White House ordered the strike as part of a covert operation carried out under NATO training exercises last summer. According to Seymour, it was then that the U.S. divers planted the explosives that were remotely detonated three months later, disabling the pipelines. In his substack, Seymour Hirsch writes that a spokesperson for the CIA vehemently denies this claim. So I, I read the Substack uh, post. It was very long. Uh, it's very thorough. It includes a lot of plausible, seemingly plausible uh, of, of basis of facts, um, you know, na names of equipment used. And, who, and he, he, he says this kind of Navy diving uh, group that is headquartered in Panama City, Florida. Uh, he, you know, he walks through the timeline of it, but I, we do have to caution. This is all based on, an, an, again, an anonymous source that he says is familiar with this operation. The source is not named. There are no documents provided. I am, and I am always, I am extremely skeptical and critical always when the sources being relied upon are anonymous. I understand in this case why they would have to be anonymous. These are high security clearance officials, people who you know, could lose their, not only just lose their jobs, but could go to jail if they were caught talking to a journalist about it. So I understand why in this case, there, you know, the, the mainstream media loves to use anonymous journalists for like, you know, why Trump was mean to someone or yeah, like sure. for totally ridiculous reasons. So here it's justified, but you still have to take it with a grain of salt. And I know, I know Seymour Hersh has done Terrific work in the past. It is also work that has, some of his more recent work has come under scrutiny, again, for relying on anonymous sources. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I've said when we talked about the subject before, I think it is could, is perfectly plausible that the U.S. could have blown up Nord Stream. I think it is in keeping with operations the U.S. has run in the past. Um, I don't, I, I don't, but I would need to see conclusive evidence to say that that's the most likely thing that occurred. And this, this <laughs> while presenting a very plausible, again, how this would have happened, 
Um, I, I, I would I would need I would need documentate I want to see documentation or I want to see an what kind of documentation an, an email yeah. from a general to a soldier on a submarine that says please blow up Nord Stream yes. pipeline tomorrow at 3 p.m. Yes. Uh, well, no, it doesn't need to be exactly that specific. <laughs> but look, well, no, you're talking about you know wanting to see documentation and not just making. Yeah, but I mean to your point, I think that this is one of those instances where you're not going to get documentation. You mm. might get a disclosure, a verbal disclosure, but it's it's, it's going to be more difficult to be able to ever yeah. prove this. But look, the Occam's razor of this particular incident has always pointed in the direction of U.S. involvement. They had um, U.S. ships doing training exercises in the region at the time of the explosion. There was reporting in this article about how initially it was supposed to be done kind of immediately, and then there was a request to do to explode the pipeline remotely. So it gave the U.S. a little bit more plausible deniability because it looked so obviously inculpatory to have the training exercises happen right where the explosion then subsequently happens. We have video of uh, Biden officials saying that there are ways to prevent um, Germany. Yeah, from and that's mentioned in the Substack. The Russian officials oil. saying Nord Stream will not happen one way, one way or, or another. another yeah, right? like ominous. And then in, in the interests, obviously, who benefits from the pipeline being destroyed, the idea that Russia was going to destroy a pipeline that enabled it to sell its oil to a huge market at a great profit was always sort of absurd. But that was the narrative that so many American uh, politicians and um, journalists were kind of floating in the wake of the explosion. So again, of course, caveat, we don't know actually, we can't conclusively know what happened. But this reporting from a very respected journalist who it's worth noting has been smeared in the context of him writing the story. Um, but the 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 this the story seems to confirm what the most obvious explanation for the Nord Stream pipeline explosion has always been. Whether or not we ever find conclusive evidence of what happened, time will tell. Uh, but the U.S. involvement in international conflict has drawn the ire of many, especially those who contend it's purely motivated by the military-industrial complex. Former Pink Floyd rocker Roger Waters spoke at the United Nations Security Council on behalf of the Kremlin on Wednesday and called for an immediate ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine. Let's take a look. Ceasefire in Ukraine today. That, of course, will only be the starting point, but everything extrapolates from that starting point. Imagine the collective global sigh of relief, the outpouring of joy, the international joining of voices in harmony, singing an anthem to peace. John Lennon pumping the air with his fist from the grave. We've finally been heard in the corridors of power. The bullies in the schoolyard have agreed to stop playing nuclear chicken. We're not all going to die in a nuclear holocaust after all, at least not today. I mean, we should note that it's very important <laughs> if the U.S. did this. I mean, this is, it, it, Congress has not declared war on Russia. They've also not declared war on Germany, who, who loses out when this pipeline is blown up. Um, uh, I, I absolutely reject that the president can unilaterally order this kind of action without 
a declaration of war against Russia, um, that this is being kept secret from Congress. That, that was kind of the implication of Seymour Hersh's reporting here, is that this was so secret, even the, I think the usual, the gang of eight or whoever it is, were not even going to be informed about it. Mm. Um, you know, this, this kind of has something to do with the complaint I, I'm having lately about all these documents, not that doc classified documents are being found in people's possession, but that all the documents are classified. Right. Because this, and, and that allows a government to operate, operate with this level of secrecy Absolutely. that that the the intelligence officials could could conduct an, an act of war uh, between two nations that were again we're not at one is an ally and one we're not at war with and no one would have to know about it and no one would find out about it uh, that's only possible with this incredible lack of transparency so this is so I hope we do get to the bottom of it and find incontroversial evidence one way or the other and that people are held accountable for it because it is not it is not okay whatsoever for the federal government to conduct itself in this manner without the explicit permission from Congress to engage in war. Yeah, it is Congress's yeah. job to declare war. It's the president's job to carry out that action. Yeah. And we've totally gotten that confused over the last few decades. I, I couldn't agree more. Look, there was this great guest essay in The New York Times yesterday called uh, Russia and Ukraine Have the Incentives to Negotiate, the U.S. Has Other Plans, uh, by Christopher Caldwell. And in it, he talks about the kind, the type of aid that the U.S. is sending to Ukraine and how the fact of it being so um, involving technologies that involve kind of remote, remote control of various mm -hmm. kind of weaponry um, it makes the idea of a proxy war. I mean, he compares it to giving weapons to the Mujahideen. And like he says, in those days, you, you give someone a weapon, you give them a gun, and you're hands off. Like there yeah. is more of an argument that you are supporting but not actually doing the war remotely. These days, the nature of the technology is that you are, you know, you, you are responsible. When, when, when Russian soldiers keep getting killed because of technology that targets self, their cell phone service, and it's Americans who have given Ukrainians the technology that is able to target soldiers based on their cell phone service, it gets closer and closer to these people would not be dying but for American intervention. Mm -hmm. And he, go, he, he walks through negotiations over who was going to give tanks, how um, Germany was really pushing back against the idea of providing tanks in particular as equipment to Ukraine, and they eventually acquiesced at, under a lot of pressure from the United States, but how they as a country have been trying and successfully for the last couple of war cycles to stay out of it, despite the, the Americans uh, urging, because they know exactly how poorly these things can end up, and that we're getting closer and closer to not just being a proxy war, but a real full-out uh, conflict with another nuclear power and how there just are not nearly enough alarm bells being rung about that possibility. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we will have more rising right after this. Stay with us. A lawyer for Hunter Biden, Washington attorney Abby Lowell, is warning those involved in spreading assertions about the infamous laptop that they could face litigation over their claims. According to Politico, who spoke with a person familiar with the situation, Lowell sent the litigation hold letters on Wednesday that read, you have made various statements and engaged in certain activities by your own admission or that have been publicly reported in the media concerning our client, Robert Hunter Biden. This letter constitutes notice that a litigation hold should be in effect for the preservation and retention of all records and documents related to Mr. Biden and may be necessary to produce this material in litigation. 
The letter was sent to 14 people allegedly linked to efforts to generate coverage critical of Hunter Biden. Among those are a lawyer for former President Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani's lawyer, Robert Costello, and an attorney for John Paul Mac Isaac, the former Delaware computer repair shop owner who handled the laptop computer that Hunter Biden dropped off in 2019. A spokesperson for Lowell has denied providing what type of litigation warnings they've given, and representatives for Giuliani and Costello have dismissed the warnings as an intimidation tactic. So you're more familiar with this part of the law. Is this pretty standard procedure? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is kind of related to a little bit of what I was talking about on my radar, that document preservation is a huge part of what happens in litigation. If you think you're going to be sued and you think there's incriminating documents, there's every incentive in the world just to dump it before you're in a position where you're tasked by the court to preserve documents um, so that they can be reviewed. A lot of people have um, routinely deleting documents, right? Companies don't save their emails on their servers forever and ever, so you might have it set to delete every three months, every six months, every right. year, whatever it is. And if you are suing someone, you want to stop that as soon as possible, long before you might get to the point in the litigation where you're actually negotiating over document disclosures. So there's like a very perfectly reasonable and good reason to want to have these litigation holds. However, it is also it also can be an intimidation technique, a kind of a threat of a lawsuit, et cetera, to try to discourage people from talking about a story that's inconvenient to the Biden family. Yeah, I've wondered that with these whole, with the Twitter files, um, and they've had, they have Slack messages as well, so maybe Twitter's policy must then have been to preserve Slack messages, because I know you can very easily set Slack messages to delete after a couple months, which is, I think, probably a good policy for most workplaces to follow. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, actually, (laughs) Um, this kind of uh, document forensics, because let's say something gets deleted in a Slack, but you screen grabbed a Slack message Mm -hmm. and we're talking about it with your friends. Are you going to discover, you know, are you going to request images from people's cell phones? How are you going to vet which images they have to turn over? You don't want, obviously, everybody's photos. (laughs) It's very private stuff. Are you going to you know, recall, um, request private emails that might have forwarded forwarded those kind of screen grabs to someone? Have you ever kind of like copy and pasted somebody's Slack messages and sent them in an email to someone Oof. who's not on your Slack thread to tell them what had gone on at work on a certain day? There's a lot of ways to find yeah. stuff. And spicy stuff usually doesn't get deleted because we share it around in our in our private lives. So yeah, like I, I, I I can understand why somebody would want to do this, but think about it from the perspective of the people who are sending this letter. What are they mad about? Are they are they rearing up for a defamation claim? Are they saying that there was something untrue about the laptop that was being said? Like what? What is it? It sounds like they're gearing basis? up to assert that the laptop was uh, was ta- was taken was improperly was not left behind, but so that then the repairman Costello. His giving it to Giuliani or et cetera, and the, the process that it made its way to the New York Post was improper, which, by the way, could be the case. That would not change. Like, this is so important. Does not change whether the information on the laptop is worth discussing by right. the media, even if it was if it was improper every step of that. Yes. If, the New York, if there was a crime committed and the New York Post participated in that, yeah. then they could be held accountable. No one is suggesting that that's the case. Right. Uh, and also, there might be no reason to think it was actually stolen. It might, it, again, the laptop person has said it was abandoned and so on. But we can care about what's on it, even if the process 100%. to get there was I mean, not proper. I know as is the case to... with WikiLeaks, as exactly. was the case with Romney's remarks about half of America, as was the case with so many things. I know everyone wants to beat up on the New York Post, but it's actually called the New York Times rule. And it is that rule that enables 
these flagship institutions to report on things yeah. like WikiLeaks and, and the like. Um, so hypocrisy abounds. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, happening today, the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government is holding its first hearing. Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley is set to testify, along with Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson, both of whom have been vocal about the alleged bias at the FBI and have criticized the Justice Department actions on the handling of a criminal investigation into Hunter Biden. So I think this committee has a lot of legitimate inquiries to look into. Uh, I, I've been very alarmed finding out more and more about uh, how much um, uh, limitations of Americans' free expression rights ha have happened on social media because of direct uh, direction from F the FBI and other agencies. Um, we're concerned about you know what the FBI knew specifically about a Hunter Biden if it waited to have the Hunter Biden investigation because it was too close to the election. Uh, concerned about the FBI's own attempts to discredit the laptops to the New York Post story based on its intelligence or, or former FBI people, these people associated with the FBI, people who have this revolving door who have gone from the FBI to Twitter. There is an actual employee who's gone from the FBI to Twitter. Uh, this, you know, the, this national security apparatus and the chilling effect they might have had on the reporting of the story mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and what effect that's had on Americans' own free expression rights. So I, I don't know what exactly we have to hear from Chuck Grassley and Ron yeah. Johnson about it. But. We'll, we'll, we'll see what there is. I think that it's perfectly legitimate to investigate. I think if, if Democrats are going to try to push back against this, I, who knows how, how they'll try to spin these hearings or what they'll make of these hearings. We saw in the context of these Twitter file hearings that they had some legitimate points to raise about whether or not the disclosures were Folsom at the same time that they made some really foot-in-mouth comments that seemed to suggest that the Hunter laptop story was in itself fake. AOC. AOC this, saying that. In, in this kind of stuff. Breaking so my heart. I hope that the left learns from that lesson, that liberals learn from that lesson from that from those hearings, and actually have to bring their own agenda to the FBI hearings and ask whether or not there has been bias that has negatively, negatively affected them, because, got to say, FBI has not exactly a been a partisan agenda to a limit the, the influence of the FBI. Yeah. That's what we should be focused yeah. on. It would be glorious. Well, that wraps it up for us this week. Tune in tomorrow to catch the best of Rising. In case you missed any of the segments we did, we post highlights from the last few days. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Have a good one. Talk Bye -bye. to you soon.